Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the province has named the new head of its COVID-19 vaccine distribution task force. This happens as Ontario moves into phase two of our vaccine rollout plan. We have a logistical nightmare of a rollout so far. So what does Dr. Homer Teen plan to do to fix it? Well, we'll talk about that. And as COVID cases continue to rise, are schools really safe to stay open? Or should Hamilton follow what other regions are doing? We also get an inside look at the money, the power, and influence behind the Ford government's push to build Highway 413. Is it a friends with benefits situation? Sure looks like it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The vaccination program. How do you think it's working out? I know on a national basis, I think we're number 58th in the world now on a global basis. I mean, it's not going well nationally, and it's not going well here in the province of Ontario. And there's a change at the top. Now, we knew this was coming because Rick Hillier, the guy who had previously run the program, announced he was stepping down at the end of last month, and there was a new appointment. CHMO's Rick Zaprin has the details. The job is going to Dr. Homer Tien, the president and CEO of Orange Air Ambulance. He's set to oversee the rollout as it enters its second phase, vaccinating frontline workers and people with underlying health conditions. Tien is replacing retired General Rick Hillier, who declined a request to stay past the March 31st expiry date of his contract. Hillier's tenure was marked by criticism about distribution pace and communication. He also oversaw the launch of the province's vaccine booking portal, as well as vaccine pilot projects at pharmacies and primary care providers. Rick Samprin, 900 CHML News. So, uh, not an unexpected change, but a change I think that was needed in a lot of people's eyes. So where do we go from here? Because the, the Ford government's undergoing an awful lot of criticism, and I think a lot of it justified uh, for their program. And, and I know that invariably they point the finger at Ottawa and say, well, we don't have enough of this, and yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, the buck stops at the Premier's office, too, to a certain extent. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, our good friend Richard Brennan. Of course, uh, he is a former journalist who covered Queen's Park for the Toronto Star and Parliament Hill for many years as well. Uh, Badger, trust you had a great long weekend. Thanks Thanks for being with us today. Sorry, Bill. Well, as you said, you're retired now, so I guess every weekend's a long weekend That's for right, you, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. uh, not a surprise that Hillier was stepping down. We knew this was going to happen a while ago. Uh, by all accounts, uh, Dr. Tien, who's taking over here, has a stellar reputation. Well, it appears so, but, uh, you know, I'm hoping he's a magician as well as a doctor. <laughs> because I'll tell you, uh, he's going to have to he's going to have to pull a rabbit out of his hat, out of his hat on this one. This this vaccination rollout is is become it's more than chaotic now. It's, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. And he's going to have to try and get some kind of hand on this because it's it's all over the map right now. I mean, literally all over the map. You know, we got we got people. You know, in, in Hamilton, we're still working on seventy years and older. And, you know, in, in Toronto, they're doing 16 over, and in some places, they're doing 55 and over. And I'm shaking my head, like, there is no, uh, you know, no common thread across the province in terms of who's doing what. Well, I know words can come back and bite you, especially if you're a politician, and, and that seems to be the case with the, with the Premier, with the announcement that Hillier was going to run this thing in the first place, because a lot of people were kind of surprised at that announcement, uh, but the justification, if you recall, that the Ford government then was, well, we need somebody who has this ability to do something in a precision-like manner, uh, you know, because this has got to be done properly. Uh, it wasn't, and it hasn't been for quite some time, and I don't know if you put all that on, on General Hillier, uh, but this program just seemed to be written on the back of an envelope. It didn't seem to be a whole lot of strategy to this well i mean 
as I said, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, Dr. Chan is going to have to do what he can with, with the vaccine he's getting. You know, we hear, well, he's got two more, 2.2 more million uh, coming any day now. We've hearing that kind of stuff for weeks. We have almost 40 million people in this country. And we've got, what, 14 million in Ontario? I mean, we need... We need 2.2 now, 2.2 tomorrow. We need these vaccines, and we need them now. And, and you know, it's just not Ford's problem. This is a federal government issue, too. Between the two of them, you know, not enough vaccines, and and maybe the fact that the rollout is, is disjointed at best. So it really is... uh, I, I hate this term, but you know it, it's it's you know it's, it's a tsunami of of, of wrong headed decisions. Your point's well taken. I mean, about the vaccine supply, and 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 you know that's a common concern right across the country. We know that, and I like to think it's getting better. And we'll see if these things actually get delivered over the next four or five days, as they are, are suggesting that they're going to be. But you counterbalance that though with the stories that we're hearing that even the vaccines that are coming to Ontario aren't being used properly. A lot of appointments are, are people just aren't showing up. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of non-information that's out there. Uh, they haven't done a very good job of selling this. And they haven't done a very good job of organizing this, even with the vaccines that they have? Well, no, and particularly to your point, Bill, I mean, the Metro Convention Center in Toronto, right downtown Toronto, they, they're just, you know, they can't give enough vaccine out to people. People aren't just, aren't showing up. And in other spots in Toronto as well, I mean, again, they, they've got, they're already, they've got the vaccine, but people aren't showing up. We, we've got that, and then the, the flip side of that coin in Hamilton, you know, we, we're looking for vaccine, and we can't get it. So where's the rhyme and the reason to this? I mean, you know, before all this started, when we got the great news, and it was great news at the time, that the, the vaccines are going to be available. We thought it was going to be a year from now, at least. But here we are, just uh, before Christmas time. We're going to start this program, and uh, and here's how we're going to do it. But all the lead-up that we had to that was, okay, you know what? We're going to do the frail and elderly in long-term care facilities. And everybody thought, yep, that's, that makes sense. Sure, they're, they're the ones that are hardest hit. Let's, let's get that done. But then they started talking about, well, the frontline workers and the most vulnerable uh, you know, we're a few months into the program right now, in, in, into April, and uh, the most vulnerable, those with underlying conditions that we told were always more vulnerable, uh, are still saying, well, what about us? I mean, you know, there just doesn't seem to be a pattern here. In other words, you want to set out a game plan. I think everybody's always going to be more confident if you say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. I may not agree with every part of it, but at least I see where these guys know what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. We never really got that. Well, and I, I preface what I'm going to say next is that I would like to, I want to see everybody vaccinated, even those who don't want to get vaccinated. But, uh, it, it, you know, we, we're to the point where we've got to start, you know, isolating certain areas like, and, and I'm not saying something that's brand new here, you know, because the doctors, uh, medical uh, specialists and that are saying this as well. They have to get to factories where they, you know we're having huge breakouts, and and teachers, and the people that are selling our groceries to us, you know the you know the cashiers, 
all those people that are working grocery stores, these people should be vaccinated, and they should be vaccinated now. They, you know, if you worked in a grocery store, you've been working under particular circumstances right from the very beginning, and onerous circumstances, and they still aren't getting vaccinated. And then you've got factories and warehouses where huge numbers of people are coming down with COVID. And there's there's no plan there to vaccinate them to try to eradicate it. It it is literally all over the map with no central point. The point they they, they talk about this task force that they have for vaccinate the vaccination rollout, but I'd like to know what they're thinking. It's a tough job. I get it, but it seems to be just so unbelievably disorganized i i mean i I, i'm looking for some order here and this is the thing that i think bothers me uh and 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 the haphazard fashion and you remember a couple of weeks ago when they said oh my goodness you know we've got this astrazeneca vaccine a whole bunch of it and it's going to expire uh early april let's just okay instead of doing it the way we're doing it uh 60 to 64 year olds you come in there uh, and God bless them, the people that got the vaccination as a result of that. That's fabulous. But an awful lot of other people say, whoa, wait a second. Wait, what about us? If you're going to move that and make some adjustments here, what about the people that have autoimmune diseases? What about people that are on chemotherapy right now for cancer? They're extremely vulnerable right now. They're, they haven't been looked after yet. What about the seniors in their homes that can't get out? Well, exactly. I mean, there's a long list once you start naming the people that, that are, are, you know, at high risk as a result of this. And, the, you know, they promised us that they were going to look after them. It hasn't happened yet. Well, and it, it doesn't seem to be a plan to do that. They now. keep saying it's going to come in the next wave. Yeah, well, this is it. We keep hearing this, that, oh, yes, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But it never seems to come to fruition. And people are waiting for it. They deserve it. They should be getting it in, in a structured form. I understand, you know, they started out with, you know, the older of folks, including myself. I just got mine last Saturday, my first shot, mm-hmm. and won't, won't get my second shot till July. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, I was talking to a buddy of mine in Chicago uh, who got his second shot three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. And... Uh, and now we're you know we're desperately waiting to get our first shot. It was it was uh, to just explain it to you. It was it was all very well run. It was at Shaking Joe's across from uh, uh, Mohawk there. Very well run. Great people. Terrific. It was Bing Bang Boom in and out after a certain time. No problem. But we're just a small section of the population, and you know a lot of the older people are. Like myself, you know, staying in the house, not going anywhere, and and then you have the, you know the first responders, you have people that go to have to go to work, have to go to work factories, have to go work in the grocery store, have to teach, whatever, and these people need it, and they and they need it now, but I don't see any plan that tells me that's going to happen. Well, the, it's the plan that we're looking for here, and, and I agree with you. I mean, uh, the good doctor who's taking over here, Dr. Ten, uh, as we mentioned, has a stellar reputation. Uh, you know, you, you served in Afghanistan, of course, in, in frontline hospitals there. He's been at Sunnybrook for the last little while, and uh, everybody who knows this guy and talks to him says he's going to be fabulous. So that 
that tells me this guy's got great medical expertise. That's that's fabulous. Uh, but this has become a logistical nightmare. How do you you can't start over again in a situation like that? But how do you how do you put something like this together and say, okay, now we have to make this coordinated? I, 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 I my guess is my first suggestion would be, uh, show me what your plan is because I'm not so sure we had one before. Because all of these other jurisdictions that we've talked about, whether it's Israel, even the United States, you know, they were laughable a couple of months ago, and now you know Biden's talking about doing uh, 200 million people in the first 100 days as opposed to 100 because it's going so well what are they doing right that we're not doing here and, and i don't just mean the numbers because i get the accessibility problem but it's not just the accessibility problem that's putting us off track here well it all comes down to bill we just don't have enough vaccines i mean you know i put everything aside and you know maybe the fact that the rollout's not the best going the best way it should and you know that people are certain people aren't getting it but the fact the fact is we're just not getting the vaccines we need here's listen if this was a god forbid a, a forest fire or any kind of a fire okay you talk to people and you did for the many many years of course uh when they're doing something like this and fighting a battle like this if they identify a hot spot they immediately say whoa whoa we got to shift some resources over here and look after that because before that actually gets worse than it is we have hot spots here in this province we have hot spots in hamilton in london in toronto uh including by the way the lower city uh, you know, low-income low people and, and racialized people, we know that to be the case, that there's a higher incidence of COVID with those people. Yet they announced their program for the Hamilton area the other day about uh, pharmacies are going to be allowed, none of them in the lower city. That's where the problem is. Where is the, the strategy here? Yeah, that that is a head-scratcher, that one. I mean, you know, people in those communities are hotspots. They, they, they need it. They need it now. And I didn't understand this whole rollout. Uh, for the drugstores to begin with, they tried it in certain certain cities, Toronto, Kingston, and uh, Windsor, as a, as a trial balloon. Well, I don't know why that would have to be a trial balloon. Why wouldn't you just introduce it right across the province? Because it's pretty simple. You give it to drugstores, and they give it to people. I mean, I don't I don't see how that's a uh, a major. A decision that you know, would have to be in a in a control rollout. It just it escapes reason to, for me. And, and you're right. Why why isn't in, in Hamilton in, in the lower city? You got me, Bill, because I haven't got a clue. Well, I'd hate to think it's a political decision, but I mean, you know, when, when in the absence of information comes speculation, and that's what happens with these. And these guys are shooting themselves in the foot about things like that, and it, it's wrong. I mean, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, I got my flu shot at my pharmacy last fall. It's 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 a lot more accessible for people that live in those neighborhoods, and we've seen this happen time and time again. Whether it's Mohawk College and, and McMaster doing outreach programs, I mean, it happens with Fanshawe and, and Western and, and London as well. They see, look at the people can't come to us because they may not have the ability to do that we're going to them we're going to bring our education facilities our traveling the, to them well why aren't the medical field p- people in the medical field doing the exact same thing go to them you want to get a higher rate of vaccination go to where those neighborhoods are don't tell them get on a bus go down to first ontario center in downtown hamilton or go to st joe's up in the mountain and get it a lot of people are saying i can't i don't have time i'm going to miss money if i do because uh, i can't you know take time off work it's inconvenient for them so make it convenient and they're not doing that no, or, don't forget people Bill, that people do not have, not everyone has a computer. No. And that we're told time and time again to go on the computer, you know, to register and to get your shot. We tried that, you know, 
my wife and I were not, you know, not techno greats, but we know how to run a computer more or less. We couldn't we couldn't even fathom how to get in into the uh, uh, the system that way, and uh, to try and get on and try and get something done, you know, in fairly good time. And I ended up calling, and you know, calling the number you know that was on on the screen and called it and. Sure enough, talked to somebody after 45 minutes waiting online, and, and uh, bing, bang, boom, I was, uh, you know, got my uh, dates for for April, and got my dates for uh, July. But, and, and just as an aside, a, a friend of ours, she, she got onto the computer, and she was told that she had to wait eight weeks for hers. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Just crazy. Uh, that's what I mean. It, it's, it's, there's no rhyme or reason to the whole thing. It's, it's just bizarre. Well, uh, there's a, yet another briefing coming up at 1 o'clock this afternoon, and uh, the Premier, I guess, is going to roll this out. I'm sure we're going to meet Dr. Tan uh, in person, uh, and we'll see what kind of uh, rationale they have for that. Uh, Badger, always a pleasure. I'm glad you got your first shot anyway. Let's uh, stay in touch, and we'll talk well, to you again soon. Well, I'm hoping everybody else gets theirs too, Billy. Me too. Okay. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, uh, retired journalist from the Toronto Star who covered uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, of course, for so many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some troubling numbers, of course, about uh, the uh, new cases of COVID that are coming out. And, uh, well, at least uh, one board of education is responding to this. Actually, a few of them are doing it right across the province. The Hamilton Catholic Board is shutting down uh, St. Peter and Paul School over on uh, uh, Fennel and Upper James area because of some outbreaks they've got. They're going to be doing remote learning for the uh, next little while. And at least uh, a couple of regions now are closing schools to in-person learning. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Students in Peel region will be learning remotely these next four days following the Easter long weekend. Then next week, they're off for spring break. There's an opportunity here uh, to really make sure, absolutely sure, uh, that our schools remain safe. Peel's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, says two weeks out of classrooms will help break chains of virus transmission. The NDP's education critic, Moritz Stiles, is not surprised at the move. The education minister last week absolutely was refusing to, I think, make some tough calls that clearly our public health units are being, are being forced into now. She says tougher safety measures being promised by Ontario's education minister have still not been put in place. Minister Stephen Lenn- is maintaining that schools are safe. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Well, we're hearing different stories, of course, from uh, well, teachers associations and unions and uh, different boards, too. Uh, let's get a read on what's happening in the Hamilton area. Manny Figueredo is the uh, Director of Education for the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Manny, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well these days. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. I know you're in constant contact with the Medical Officer of Health and that, that department, of course, uh, with what's happening with the schools here. Uh, the debate now seems to be whether or not it's safe to send kids back into school. Uh, there was some talk about extending the uh, the break. Of course, you've got the, well, it's not the March break anymore, but the midterm break uh, is coming up shortly. Uh, what's the status? Are you, are you confident about the way things are going right now with the in-classroom learning, or do you have some concerns? Yeah, I've always had some concerns, Bill. I think the key piece is always looking at the data. Uh, yesterday, we did connect with the chief medical officer uh, yesterday afternoon to discuss um, the situation, and I think it's always critical to look at numbers. So one of the questions I ask is, asked and was shared with us is, what are the numbers on the ground here in Hamilton uh, versus Peel region in terms of the number of cases? And we were shared that the number of cases per 100,000 over the last seven days is, is about 229 in Peel region 
and in Hamilton, it's about 130, so almost 100 less cases. However, um, what I am worried about, um, uh, as I hear about decisions being made to go to remote now, I'm more worried about the post, I'll call it spring break surge. So I'm worried about um, after next week, um, if students will not be in any type of, um, you know, remote learning or in in school, it's the surge after that. So worried about uh, community spread that might come into the schools after spring break. So that is my greatest uh, concern at this point. And we've had that conversation with the local chief medical officer, and we're going to be meeting again uh, later this week to um, decide, uh, you know, and I know it's the chief medical officer has under the Health Promotion Protection Act, Section 22, but again, it's always in partnership with their directors. I know some boards were discussing their concern this week. Uh, I'm more concerned, again, the week after um, spring break and, and what should we be doing then to, to prevent community spread coming into our schools. Well, because I'm confused, and I think an awful lot of our listeners are confused about this too, Manny, so maybe you can give me your perspective on this. Uh, and I th- I agree, by the way, with your, your concern, uh, because every time those kids have been away from any length of time, uh, invariably there is a bit of a spike when they come back in. Uh, but the experts are telling us that it's not student to student. Those are the kids that are probably uh, being exposed to the virus when they're home, and then they're bringing it into the school when they come back after, a, as you say, a midterm break or something. So. Uh, you, you try to balance that against what other people are saying, well, the, safe, the school is the safest place. Uh, and, and you figure, okay, well, then shouldn't they be in school as opposed to being at home? Because it seems to be a better environment for them, and, and there's there's less spread that goes on in situations like that. Uh, but that it's not that black and white, is it? There are so many other variables. Like you say, you look at a place like Peel, which you're basically saying, we're not letting the kids back uh, because we're concerned about the spread that's going to go on. It doesn't matter where they're getting it from. When they get into the school environment, it's going to spread. So, I mean, there, there's no easy answer here no it's complex i think bill we've had this conversation before is that if we want our students uh in a place where there's um there's structure where the public health measures are in place and and our staff has been doing an outstanding job i know everyone's fatigued with the health measures but when they are in school um you know there's the hand washing there's the masking um, there's a reinforcement of, of, of those health, health measures. But when I do look at my March data and, and I compare, you know, March, we were 244 cases. Out of those, there were, there were 30 staff cases. So when I compare that to December, it, it's, it's double. So, uh, again, we talked about the variance, the virus changes. So it, it's very uh, difficult. Um, so what we hope, you know, is, is that... Um, that we continue to reinforce these messages and that, that when the spring break comes, that students will, will continue to do so. But we know, we know it's difficult. We know it's difficult for working parents. And, and I've said to people, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, at times I lose sleep. It's thinking about if I close a school like we had to Dr. Davey um, mm-hmm. operationally because we had an outbreak. We had a, more than half the staff needed to self-isolate. And uh, we had over 100 students who needed to go home, so we, we did shift to remote learning for two weeks. But when I make that decision, I wonder how many parents can't go to work now? How many um, families might not get a paycheck because of not, uh, not being able to go to work? So it's, it, it is complex, um, and um, these decisions are not, are, are not made lightly because every decision is a ripple, there's a ripple effect. Um, but when we look now, this meeting we're going to have later this week, 
we want to discuss what are the current numbers and what we are seeing right now when we compare the first five days of April, uh, at least in our board, the number of cases uh, from April 1st to the 5th is 39, and from March 1st to the 5th, it was 20. So we are seeing a, um, a spike in cases, and we are seeing an increase with the variants of more elementary students. Um, thankful that our trustees at the time in September actually uh, asked us to use our reserve funding and, and up to $9 million to lower class sizes. So every measure is put in place. Um, we are what I say in this year in the home stretch of this of this marathon the last next three months, and I think a key part we've also talked around how do we that's been in the media how do we help our education workers uh, help uh, and accelerate in this phase two around vaccination. So we've had conversations with public health. They've asked us to provide um, some of our numbers. You know, and for us, we would prioritize about 1,100 to 1,200 staff to get vaccinated uh, sooner uh, because they do work with our students with pervasive special education needs. And we think that's a critical piece too um, for safety in our schools. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. I think a lot of people are, are concerned about the rollout itself. And, you know, I, I consider obviously teachers to be frontline workers in this situation, uh, yet uh, it, they're just kind of getting around to them now. And even at that point, I mean, we're going to get into that in greater detail a little bit later on in the show, but there's, they've got some questions to answer. Uh, given the, the way that some boards across the province have reacted to this, Manny, uh, and, and I want to get another point clarified here because I'm getting mixed messages from what I'm hearing from Queen's Park and what I'm hearing from some of the different boards. Do you have the flexibility at the Hamilton board to pull the plug on this and say, no, we're not going to do in-classroom learning, our numbers are just too high, or do you have to wait until the province gives you permission to do that? Well, we so we so I think it's a two, two-prong approach. From the beginning, the ministry has said that um, they can make that decision with the COVID command table and, and and execute the health um, execute the health protection promotion act which allows them to uh, close schools because of this pandemic but however um, at a regional level there is also some local autonomy at the regional level so we can work with our chief medical officer um, and as you see in peel region they have determined and and execute section 22 Um, however uh, as you've quoted earlier in the show today there are times where the director can execute like a closure of a school because of operational challenges. Mm-hmm. So an example I gave you, Dr. Davey, um, because it was becoming very challenging to maintain operations, then we did switch to remote. But in terms of the Section 22 of the Health Protection Promotion Act, uh, that's within the authority of the, of the uh, chief medical officer, but of course they want to do that in collaboration with the school boards to understand uh, where we're at. But uh, my concern right now is when we look at our staff absences, because they have to do the daily self-screening. And when the province moves to one symptom, we don't want people to come into work with those symptoms. However, when we look at our absences over the last two weeks, uh, we were averaging about 800 to 900 staff absences, and and 20 to 24% of those absences were because of COVID-related. Either they had symptoms, didn't come to work, or there was a case in a school or an outbreak, and they were determined by public health um, to isolate for a time period. So um, that's important. So what I worry about is as those numbers grow, how do we manage our schools operationally? And you can see there are cases at times where we do at a local level close a school because of our challenge to manage that and to almost do a reset, go to remote 
uh, let it reset, and then allow staff to come back because they've had the time to self-isolate. But during their time of self-isolation, they can't teach remotely. So it is becoming more challenging operationally for for school boards um, over the last, I would say, month in result of the daily screening, which is vital, and the number of absences we're managing because of COVID. So these are conversations we're having with our uh, with our chief medical officer, especially this week as we think about next week. Well, yeah, and I know you're concerned also for the week after the break, too, and just what's going to be happening then and how they're going to respond. Manny, always appreciate you taking some time out of a very busy day to uh, to talk with us about this. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and I know we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you, Bill. You, you as well. Take care. Manny Figueroa, of course, who's the director of education for the Hamilton Board of Education. So what about this rollout program? I mean, you know, I think a lot of people said, okay, let's just back off a little bit, see how this goes. Uh, and a lot of us, I think, bought into the idea that the premier kept saying it, we just don't have enough vaccine. And that's true. But are they doing it as efficiently as they can with the vaccines that they have? Uh, you're shaking your heads. I want to uh, bring uh, Dr. Lauren Small into the conversation. Dr. Small is an infectious disease specialist with the Trillium Health Partners. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I, 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 maybe you could uh, offer some analysis here because I'm, I'm shaking my head as I look at this program as it's rolling out. And I know they've changed the, the head of, of, of the program provincially here now. And, and hopefully we're going to see some, some, some consistency here. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about teachers as frontline workers. We're talking about people in grocery stores. And they say, wait a second, six months ago you said we were important. Uh, now we can't get a vaccine even if we wanted one. Uh, where Where is the, the, the structure here to say, okay, you people are, are, are frontline. You're most exposed. Uh, let's look after you first. I don't see that happening. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the rollout process, you know, I think – I think it's quite important to to to, to look at the the whole picture. Um, I mean, it's it's been uh, quite prescriptive, um, you know, and and age based, you know, starting with the long term care residents. Um, and and I, you know, I, I heard you mentioning, you know, it's dependent uh, on uh, on on the um, on the vaccine quantity and supply, and that is true. Um, and and I think it's it is important that. Um, the the original rollout um, is maintained, um, and we continue working through these age groups. But at, at the same time, uh, I do think we, we really need to be looking at uh, these higher risk populations, um, and whether that be a higher risk uh, because of underlying health conditions, which is something um, that is actually happening now. Um, there are referral processes in place. Uh, for for those uh, for those people who have uh, underlying health conditions and and need to be vaccinated, and I think the next step is is to really um, build in a robust process whereby uh, people that are uh, vulnerable because of of where they work uh, or what they do, uh, I think that that is is the next step, and and there needs to be uh, a prescriptive process around that as well. I mean, I've, our listeners, I've done some a lot of work with the Scleroderma Association uh, provincially and, and, and local ones here, too, uh, because I know so many families that have been involved in this. And for people, I know it's a rare disease, but, for, you know, we've talked a lot about it. Basically, it's, it's your body fighting against itself, and they have virtually no immune system because of the, as you know, doctor. Uh, and I, I've talked to families over the last couple of weeks that are saying, what about our kids? You know, you know, they've got it in their lungs. They've got it. They're extremely vulnerable right now. They're afraid to let them out of their bedrooms, let alone to go to the store 
or anything like this. And you figure, well, they should be, you know, those are the people that, that you're looking at right now, not just the people in the front lines like teachers and, and, and even the clerks that are working in situations like this, but to, to reach out to those people, cancer patients that are on chemotherapy right now. I mean, you know, we should be looking after them first. And I, I don't, I, and I know you know that, and, and the people that are involved with this uh, understand that, but I'm not hearing that from the people that are making the decisions about who goes next. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, and, 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 and while we're, we're not hearing about this um, kind of in a, a, a broad way, um, on a local level uh, through many of the hospitals um, in Ontario, there is a referral process um, that, that has been implemented, um, and, and family physicians uh, and physicians throughout the hospital um, are, are generally aware of this, and, and patients can be referred uh, based on um, their underlying health conditions. So, so exactly the type of patients that you've been mentioning, uh, p- patients that have uh, significant uh, immunocompromised immune, uh, compromised immune systems uh, can be referred. Uh, and this is already in place in a number of areas and, and uh, probably will be in place in more areas uh, within uh, the short term. So, so that process is rolling out. Um, it, it hasn't been widely um, mentioned, but it is out there. Now, if there's going to be a change in, in, in the dynamic and how this is actually going to be done over the next little while, we may find out about that later on today when the Premier and, and the, the new head of the vaccine program is actually going to be addressing the public. Is this better handled at the local level? In other, you know, for instance, at the pharmacy level, at family doctor level, uh, where people seem to be a lot more comfortable going that they know their pharmacist, they know their family doctor, uh, because it seems as if these mass vaccination sites are not having the impact that a lot of us thought it was going to have. Yeah, so, you know, the, the mass vaccination sites um, have, have, have been great in terms of, you know, the age, age-related rollout that I, that I mm-hmm. mentioned, and, and they're, they're doing a fantastic job uh, in terms of that. Um, you know, and, and when we get down to kind of the more granular um, uh, status, the vaccination status for, like you said, the, the immunocompromised folks or, or, or folks that... Uh, are vulnerable because of where they where they work. Um, some of that may have to be downloaded uh, to the uh, the local public health units, uh, especially uh, when we're looking at uh, specific places of work, um, because that that actually may be better managed by local public health units, uh, just in terms of directing where the vaccine should go. But I think overall we don't want um, we don't want there to be um, be siloed rollouts of vaccination uh, because that's when the the inequity really begins to to happen. So I think no matter where the vaccine's coming from and, and or, or who's managing it from a local perspective, I think it's really important that there is a a, a broad overarching rollout process, which is which is really what's happening now. Yeah, and consistency too, and as it is with every other government program too, uh, information and dissemination of that information is going to be a key to this too. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Take care. Dr. Lauren Small, of course, uh, with the Trillium Health Partners. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to give you an update on a story that we covered here, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now. And it had to do with a uh, proposed highway going across uh, the top of the GTA. It's Highway 413. 
Now, this is not a new idea. Our previous governments had actually talked about this, but uh, it, it has been shelved, and it looks like the Ford government is trying to breathe air into this again. Uh, and there's been some great investigative reporting done on this. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Stephen Del Duca on the program. Stephen, of course, is the Ontario uh, Liberal leader on the provincial basis here. He was the transportation minister in the previous government, in the Wynn government, uh, when they had the discussion to actually shelve this program. This is how he explained it. I was the transportation minister who had the courage to stop the 413 the first time. I was part of a government that made the decision to appoint a panel to review it. That panel report was unanimous, that it was unnecessary, that it wouldn't save commuters very much time at all. And the price for this thing, we're talking about, I think this is north of $10 billion when all is said and done. It's close to 60 kilometers of highway. Uh, it would be crossing a ton of rivers and other wetlands. It would be paving over farmland and the Greenbelt or parts of the Greenbelt. And all of it to save commuters, only some commuters, maybe 30 to 60 seconds per day, just makes no sense. It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to an awful lot of people, as a matter of fact, especially in some of the communities that are going to be impacted by this highway and its construction. Uh, there's a, a great piece that really lays everything out for us here that's a collaboration of a number of reporters, including Emma McIntosh. Emma is, uh, of course, a uh, reporter with the uh, National Observer. Uh, this, the report that, uh, that I read this morning, of course, appears in a number of papers, including the Toronto Star, uh, that you could have a look at. But uh, we're pleased to welcome Emma to the program uh, to explain what's going on. Emma, thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on a great piece of work that was published today. That's really kind. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Well, it's a story that needs to be told. And, and like so many other mega projects that seems to be getting some opposition uh, and the government seems to want to move forward on this anyway, uh, that old mantra that uh, that I think every reporter learns day one when they go to journalism school is follow the money. And that, that's pretty much what you guys have done, isn't it? Yeah, that was a big part of it. I think, um, like you, we were confused about who wanted this highway and who might benefit from it? If, if commuters weren't standing to benefit that much, surely someone must be. And that's what we were hoping to answer. It's a complex situation. I understand that. Anytime there's highway construction and, you know, those of us that were born and raised or even just live here in the, in the southern Ontario, especially the GTA area, uh, are always concerned about traffic, about gridlock. We've been talking about this for decades now, as you know, uh, and governments uh, have from, you know, the number of years ago to the present one, of course, are always talking about how they can relieve that. Uh, that was the motivation, of course, for the 407, which turned out to be, of course, a, a toll highway. Uh, and that hasn't even solved the problem. There's still congestion going on. Uh, so this is why this 413 project is, is still being talked about. But why is this government so intent on doing this when previous governments, both of them liberal, uh, the McGinney and Wynn governments, basically said forget about it? It's a complicated question, and, and there isn't really an easy answer. What the government says is that this is the type of project that we want to be doing right now as we look to boost our economic recovery from COVID-19. So that's part of it, right? It, it could create jobs. They also say that if we don't do something, highways in the greater Toronto area are going to be over capacity within the next decade. And they think that the highway is the best way to solve that problem. They actually contend that it'll save drivers half an hour as opposed to a minute. So it's really two sides kind of arguing the same points, and, and it's hard to tell um, exactly who's right. But a lot of a lot of experts and a lot of folks feel that a new highway is not the best solution, that it's going to be very emissions intensive, that it's going to create traffic. There's this concept called induced demand that means that it, it might just create more rather than solving the problem. 
and that maybe we could achieve the same thing by investing in better transit or making better use of the 407. Well, I'm sure you've seen those studies, and we've had experts on that have talked about this as well, uh, urban strategists and designers that will tell you if you build a larger highway, it doesn't reduce congestion, it increases it because it encourages more people to drive. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, a lot of people just feel like this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, on the other hand, you know, I've been sitting in traffic for hours on the 401. I get it. <laughs> like, I, I would oh, yeah. like to not sit there in traffic for five hours. Um but it, it's it's a big clash, I think, over what direction we want to go in. It, it can be very much seen as a microcosm of larger questions about what to do with the Golden Horseshoe and, and what kind of place we want to live in in another 10 years. Well, as your piece points out, and I think this is all about context, uh, this is really the remnants of a project that was really designed many years ago, wasn't it? Uh, you know, they wanted to go from Fort Erie all the way up to, to where this one's going to go, up near Vaughan. Uh, and... and piecemeal and and i i mean i was on local council at the time that was proposed i was a supporter of, of this highway especially from fort erie to, to hamilton airport and beyond uh but subsequent governments really just kind of pushed it to the back burner and said i oh, will get around to it we need to do this and it, it died a very slow death as a matter of fact and, but this part of it seems to be the remnant of that uh and all of a sudden there's this renewed interest in this and and you know forgive me for being cynical about this but you know as i read the piece today it really validated what a lot of people have been thinking is uh there could be a, a financial motivation for this because an awful lot of the people that to you answer your question who would benefit from this are major supporters of this ford party uh, ford government rather and and for ford himself as he was running for the leadership yeah that's correct um and i'm glad that you noted how old this project is because i i realized while reporting this that depending on which document you reference is actually older than me and i'm 25 so this has been going on for a long <laughs> long time um and yeah, what we did was we looked at large plots of land around the proposed highways road um, to see whose land would go up in value if this highway actually gets built. Access to transportation makes it a whole lot more valuable. A lot of the time, um, it's a practice called land speculation. Developers will buy up large tracts of farmland that are zoned for just being agricultural land, nothing else. And what they're betting on is that maybe one day they could convince a local government to rezone it for some type of development. And if you build a highway there, in addition to that, I mean, the profit margins are, are absolutely enormous. Um, and so we looked at some examples of that in the story. And we, we zeroed in on eight developers um, who hold, you know, significant chunks of land. We're talking like over 100 acres and, and who could stand to benefit quite a bit. Um, then we looked at whether those developers had donated to the progressive conservatives. And we found that all of them had, all eight. Uh, and some of them also donated significant sums to Ontario Proud. We, we settled on a total of over $800,000 since 2014. And I think it's safe to say that that's a conservative figure because this wasn't a comprehensive look at all of the land ownership on the highway. It's really just a snapshot. There could be more that we weren't able to find. 
And, and by the way, it goes beyond that, too. I mean, not only were there significant amounts of money that were donated to the Conservative Party or to leadership campaigns, uh, some of the folks that you've uh, you've written about here in, in the piece, Emma, actually served in government, in, in, well, if, both federally and provincially. Frank Cleese, who's a former transportation minister for the Harris government, he's in there. Uh, Peter Van Loan, who was the House leader under the Harper government for a while, uh, who also ran uh, Carolyn Mulroney's uh, leadership, failed leadership bid a couple of years ago when she wanted to, to lead the provincial party. Uh, and on and on it goes. So there's some very close ties here, which is not unusual. I mean, let's not be naive about this. As you guys point out here, uh, there's always going to be people that are going to try to influence governments, and, and a lot of them are people that you know have made financial donations. Uh, but governments are supposed to be able to, to still have some sense of objectivity to this. But again, it seems as if the money and the, and the folks that you've just mentioned here uh, seem to be driving this project because it does seem to run counter to a number of existing government policies like, uh, well, let me pick one, the Green Belt, for instance, which is going to uh, be impacted by this. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think it's worth noting that when we put a lot of these questions to the government and we ask them if the donations and if the, that lobbying by conservative insiders factored into their decision to revive this project. They didn't answer. Um, they answered other questions, but not that one. And and, and so that remains out there, right? Um, I think what was really important here is that opposition critics and environmental critics have been raising concerns about this for quite a while, saying that, hey, this project would benefit Ford donors. This project would benefit conservative insiders. And I think there's a certain power in just having the information. Um, it, it's one thing when it it's kind of lobbed as a partisan insult. It's another when you actually take a look at it, you count it up, you map it out, and you see what's actually there. And I think I think what we found are really more questions, but it's a starting point, right? Well, it is, and, and it's important that we understand the background for this and, and why this is, is all of a sudden moving forward. And it's also, by the way, incorporating some of the stuff that we've talked about in this program over the last couple of months, and that's these ministerial orders. Uh, the basic say if, if a minister whether it's the premier or one of his cabinet ministers uh signs one of these orders uh it doesn't matter what the local councils think i mean they, this this uh, this just overrides almost everything and i know they've used that more than any other government in the last 30 years uh in the year and a half or two years that they've been in power right now but this is another example of it uh because you know both peel and and vaughn uh, who are two areas going to be most impacted by this have both said we don't want this please don't do this and they've been overridden by the provincial government that's right. A lot of municipalities are um, are turning their backs on this project, kind of one by one. Um, and it, it's kind of been like this slow motion tide changing over the last couple of months. It, it's hard to exactly understand why now, when um, when really, you know, the Ford government revived this idea in 2018. So um, it, it's been even more recently around for quite a while. But Something happened this winter and communities started mobilizing and talking to their local councils. And, and now really only York region um, has, has not backed down in any way. Um, every other community along the route of the highway has either said that they are, are no longer interested or that they would rather have Ottawa step in and handle the environmental assessment at a minimum. Yeah, we had uh, David Cromie, the former mayor of Toronto, of course, uh, and 
minister, by the way, in the Mulroney cabinet. He's a conservative, uh, but very much an environmentalist. He's, uh, as you, I, I know, have been reporting, uh, Emma. He, he resigned, of course, as, a, as president of the Greenbelt Council uh, Advisory Group just a few months ago because of some of the Ford government policies, uh, which he felt were, were, well, let's face it, contrary to what they had tried to do and talked about doing uh, vis-a-vis the Greenbelt and other things. And uh, it, it, it's, it's frustrating, I guess, when you see somebody uh, of that stature simply say, wait a second, we got a problem here. And it's not a partisan issue with Mr. Crombie. He's uh, of the same political stripe that all the people were just talking about here. But he also has as an environmental conscious. And he says, and you guys, you can't do this. It's not what we're supposed to be doing these days. Uh, yet they seem to be ignoring what he's saying as well. Yeah, and I think you're getting at maybe an even more interesting point, which is that the opposition to the 413 is not just environmentalists and uh, opposition parties anymore, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It's longtime conservative voices now who are speaking up about it, who uh, who seem to have strong feelings about it. Um, conservative MP Michael Chong wrote an editorial for his local yep. paper where he talked about how he believes it should not be built. And really, when you look closer on a different level, these are all 905 communities that have pulled their support. The, these are the vote-rich areas that the Ford government will need to win over if they want to form government a second time. And I don't know if they anticipated that when they revived this project. Um, so it's hard to tell sometimes whether that opposition is a very vocal minority of people, whether it's a, a rather large voting block that, that might um, might swing the way things go the next time around. We won't know. But I think it's worth watching because it is rare for me to see communities in the 905 so opposed to a move by the Ford government like this. Well, exactly, and, I, and I'm glad you included a very important piece of this as well. As you mentioned, when they re- revived this project back in 2018, uh, they also made a commitment that they were going to actually do a, a revision of the environmental process, uh, the assessment process. Uh, they, they call it streamlining, uh, uh, which is political you know, wordsmithing, because basically what they're doing is taking out some important steps, and it, it would actually, if they go forward on this project, uh, would actually give them permission to actually begin the project before the environment assessment's even done. Uh, you know, bridge construction and, and things of that nature, uh, basically to the point where you say, well, we may as well continue because we've already started. Uh, and uh, it, it opens up a whole different chasm here of, of you know, what's going to happen here and just how much, uh, you know, strength the opposition to this is going to have right now. Uh, the battle's not over yet, is it? No, I don't think it's over yet. And frankly, even if, you know, the federal government decides to step in and do an environmental assessment, even if the Ford government shelves the project again, that might not end it either. You know, um, an idea like this that keeps coming back and back, uh, critics kind of call it a zombie highway. Um, you just don't know. <laughs> it could be it could be years maybe until we know for sure whether this will happen or not happen. Um, a lot of folks do feel that if the, if the feds step in, that effectively kills the project. It slows it down. It makes it make even less sense than it did before. Um, and we'll find out if Ottawa is going to do that in May. But in the meantime, I guess it's kind of a waiting game. It is. Uh, but this is such an important piece, and I encourage everybody to, to read this. It's called Friends with Benefits, an inside look at the money, power, and influence behind the Ford government's push to build Highway 413. Uh, great work on this, Emma. Uh, really do appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about this and, uh, and put this back on the front burner so that we can all pay attention to this. Thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful.
Take care. Emma McIntosh, of course, reporter for Canada's National Observer. And uh, she, along with uh, Noor Javid and uh, Steve Bust from The Spectator, co-authors of this piece. And uh, you can check that out online and uh, give you some very, very essential background as to what's going on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.